as we continue back in our series in the book of Acts. I wonder if you're like me and you walk into a business and you see one of those little suggestion boxes. Do you ever think to yourself, I'd like to put a suggestion in that box? You know, I always see those little boxes and I imagine that if you open them up, they would be dusty inside and pretty much empty. Maybe because I've never taken the time to put a suggestion in one of those suggestion boxes myself. You know, if I see a problem in a place of business that needs to be solved, I usually keep it to myself unless it's a really, really bad problem. Now, let me go on record to say that I don't think churches should ever have suggestion boxes. Now, I don't, I don't mean that suggestions can't be made in the, in the church. I just think that suggestion boxes themselves are far too impersonal and a possibly anonymous way for suggestions to be made about problems that arise. And I guarantee you, problems always arise. Anonymous suggestions are oftentimes just angry complaints, and that's not good. That's not good for people's hearts. But problems in the church, whether someone's angry or not, oftentimes deserve a hearing. Even if people are angry and upset, there's oftentimes something of value that should be listened to about what they're saying, even if they go about it in the wrong way. Problems in the church threaten God's work in and through the church. They threaten the unity of the church, and therefore they threaten our witness in the world. And that's exactly the problem that we find near the beginning of our passage this evening. It's a problem in the church that leads to a complaint, leading to a solution that preserves and ultimately protects God's work in and through this young church in Jerusalem. The message for us that's here in this passage is that our church will grow if we preserve unity and prioritize the Word with proper leadership roles. That's right. Our church will grow just like their church grew if we preserve unity and we prioritize the Word with proper leadership roles. My sermon this evening is going to have three points to it. They're pretty simple. If you want to write them down, you might find it helpful to follow along. The first is two solutions, one, excuse me, two problems, <laughs> two problems, one solution is the second point, and then increasing growth. Two problems, one solution, increasing growth. Now, if you'll remember, when we left off our study in the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem was growing exponentially. Back in chapter 4, the men who were in the church numbered about 5,000, and now we're in chapter 6, and it hasn't stopped growing. Verse 1 in our passage begins by saying, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the religious authorities have tried putting the apostles in prison but God miraculously rescued them and sent them right back into the temple to begin preaching the gospel again. The apostles have been beaten, 
just like Jesus, and yet they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Nothing seems to be stopping the advance of the gospel and the growth of the church. And the church is incredibly generous as well. They give to one another. They give generously to the apostles. They are, have been laying money down at the feet of the apostles and letting them oversee distribution of that money to those who need it most. Incredible things are happening in this church. In chapter 4, Luke wrote that there was not a needy person among them. But by chapter 6, the church has grown so much that there are some needy people who are being overlooked. They're not being properly taken care of. And that introduces us to the first point this evening, two problems. There's two problems that the church faces in our passage, and we see those in verses 1 and 2. Now, the church in Jerusalem is made up of Jews who have turned to Christ in faith, but there are Jews of different ethnic backgrounds that are mixed together in the church in Jerusalem. In the second half of verse 1, it says there, if you'll look there with me, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, both Hellenists and Hebrews were Jews, but the Hellenists were likely Greek-speaking Jews whose families had immigrated from areas where the Jews had been scattered by God to the other nations when in the Old Testament He had let other nations around them conquer Israel and drive those Jews out to other nations. Well, now many of them have immigrated back to Jerusalem in the centuries following those wars. And the group of Jews that are in Jerusalem are mixed. There were language and culture differences between these two kinds of Jews, and those differences became an opportunity for Satan to create some division, some relational tension between the two groups. The church had a daily distribution of food or money that supported the widows who were among them, who were members. Now, widows, of course, would have been a particularly vulnerable group in that day and time. They had no husband to support them, and there was very little, if any, social safety net to take care of them. They were the most vulnerable. In Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, God had given specific instructions to the Israelites for taking care of widows. And then if we fast forward into the New Testament, we see in 1 Timothy that Paul gives rather lengthy instructions about how the church should take care of widows who are in their midst. Widows and other vulnerable groups within the church have always been a concern for God's people. God cares deeply about the vulnerable, and so His people should as well. Now, there's a number of things that we can learn from this situation just in verses 1 and 2. First of all, ethnic and cultural differences between us can either be ways that God shows forth His glory to the world through us when we love one another sacrificially, or those differences can provide an opportunity for Satan to drive a wedge, to sow division and discord in our midst. It makes most sense to assume that the Hebraic Jews were mostly in charge of the daily distribution 
and they were neglecting the Hellenistic Jews who were the immigrants in all likelihood. We don't know if the Hebraic Jews were doing it on purpose or simply out of ignorance, but even if it was simply out of ignorance, and I think that makes the most sense, it just proves the point that it's easy to overlook the needs of people that are different than yourself and especially the most vulnerable. We've covenanted together here in Covenant Hope Church to watch over each other's lives, helping each other fight sin, and to meet one another's needs as God enables us to do that. But because of our sinful nature, our tendency is to just consider our own needs, of course. Whether the difference between us is ethnicity or nationality or sex or age, it's harder to know the needs of people who are different than you. You haven't walked a mile in their sandals, so to speak. If you're a young or middle-aged man, would you know the needs of a mother of young children? If you're close to retirement, would you know the needs of someone who's a student? Or if you were a student, would you know the needs of someone who's close to retirement? If you're Filipino, how would you know some of the unique needs of someone who's British, for example? Or if you're Indian, would you understand the challenges facing some of our Filipino brothers and sisters? The way that God can use our differences for His glory and fame is if we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, just like Paul tells the Philippians in his letter to them in chapter 2. That's why cross-cultural friendships are so important in our congregation. We're a multinational, multi-ethnic congregation. And so this is a, a prime spot for Satan to try to drive a wedge into our fellowship. That's why friendships between young and old are so important to us. It's, it's in the context of friendships, you see, that we find out what challenges fellow church members are really facing. I hope you're taking advantage of the diversity that we have in our congregation to get to know members who are different than you, asking them what challenges they're facing in life, how you can pray for them, what joys and burdens they might be carrying. Deep, significant friendships will help us know how to love one another well. It's also important to point out that there are godly ways to raise a complaint, and there are ungodly ways to do it as well. Grumbling and complaining is a serious sin. If you've read anything of the Old Testament, especially, for example, the book of Exodus and Numbers, you know that God takes grumbling and complaining very seriously. He sees it as rebellion against Himself and not just perhaps the leaders of His people. But this complaint here in Acts chapter 6 seems like it was raised in a godly way, perhaps without a demanding spirit, without anger, or without distrust of God Himself. And I say that because there's no record of the apostles rebuking anyone because of this complaint. And that's one of the roles of leaders, to rebuke grumbling and complaining if it's appropriate. If you come to know 
about an important need that's being neglected in our church or in a fellow church member's life, here are some ways that you could go about making the need known in a godly way or solving the problem for that matter. Really, the first step that I want to encourage you to take is to pray. Pray that you would become aware of the needs of others who are around you, especially those who are different than you. A second step that you might take is that you should try to meet the need yourself. Sometimes when we see a need, it's something that we should take care of, not necessarily take it to a leader to solve the problem. We're the best solution oftentimes that if we've prayed for solutions for people's problems. God wants to have us serve them in a unique way and solve the problem. A third step might be to approach an elder or a deacon and point out the need asking for wisdom or what could be done about it. Those are some good steps to come with a complaint in a spirit of humility and love and grace. That's probably how this need of the Hellenistic widows was brought to the attention of the apostles because they take it seriously. This is a church of probably well over 10,000 people and this problem of the Hellenistic widows not being served in the daily distribution makes it all the way to the 12 apostles. The first problem the church faces was some inequity in how the daily distribution was being carried out. Now, the second problem is raised by the apostles themselves. Look with me at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Originally, the apostles were overseeing the daily distribution. They took the physical needs of the widows seriously, as all elders should watch over their flock and be aware of needs that are there in the congregation. That's a sign of truly loving shepherds, when the leaders know and care about the most vulnerable especially. But the second problem they faced was that if they spent their time solving the distribution problems then Jesus' primary ministry calling in their lives would have been neglected. The ministry of the Word would suffer. It might even end. Rather than preaching the gospel and teaching the church about how they should live their lives following Jesus, they would get diverted into organizing, meeting the physical needs of the church. Now, both of these needs, the physical needs of the widows and the need for the preaching to continue unabated, both of these problems were very, very important. But the same people couldn't do both jobs well. These were two compounding problems that were related, and both of them needed a solution. And so, with wisdom given by the Spirit, the apostles proposed one solution to solve those two problems. And that's our second point this evening. One solution. We see that in verses 3 through 6 in our passage. Remember, the apostles have called together the full number of disciples. I mean, that's the whole church in Jerusalem, likely well over 10,000 people. In all likelihood, they were gathered together in Solomon's colonnade, which could hold that many people and more. And to the whole church, they propose that the church members themselves select seven men to oversee the daily distribution. Those seven men were to have 
two qualifications. One, they were to have a good reputation, to be of good repute, it says. Secondly, they were to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They needed to be godly men. Then the apostles would devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. A division of labor would solve the problem. That's what they were proposing. These two groups, the twelve apostles on one hand and the seven overseeing the daily distribution, are the beginnings of what would eventually become in the church the two offices of leadership, elders and deacons. Later in the church's growth, Paul in 1 Timothy, which I mentioned earlier, would explain the qualifications of elders and deacons, the two biblical offices of the church. Both of these tasks were important, so important that separate groups should handle them. As elders of Covenant Hope Church, like the apostles here in this passage, we want to devote ourselves first and foremost to preaching the Word and to prayer, just like the apostles did. Preaching and prayer are fundamental to strengthening and the expansion of the church. You could say preaching and prayer are to the church just like eating three healthy meals a day are to anyone's body. Your body won't grow without healthy food on the table regularly. You see, every one of our six elders, whether it's me or Michael or Mark or Nissen or Frank or Shannel, you see us teach publicly from time to time, and we also want to be teaching more informally, of course, in discipling relationships. If we meet up with you at a coffee shop, perhaps, or we come over to your home for an evening dinner with you and your family, we also want to teach in prayer meeting devotionals or teaching core classes. All these settings we want to be teachers and preachers of the gospel. But prayer is just as important to us. One of the things that we do to make prayer a priority as elders is to dedicate some time every elder meeting to praying for you, the members. Every elder meeting we're praying for you. We have elder meetings Every two weeks, each one of them is about three hours long. About half the meetings are designated to focusing on making decisions about issues that we faced. So, for example, we might be thinking through the issue of divorce and remarriage and what does the Bible teach about that so that we can lead and guide our church in these difficult, painful, controversial issues. But the other half of our elder meetings are designated as what we call shepherding meetings. And for those, each of us as elders are assigned a group of members whom we call or we meet with to find out how you're doing in your life, how you're doing in your walk with Christ. We ask who you're connected with in the church because we, we want to make sure that you're not just simply attending a weekly worship service, as important as that is. We want you to have relationships in the church. And we ask when we get in touch with you what we can most pray for you about when we gather as elders. And we write that down, and each elder shares what they've found out about each of the members that they're responsible for that week with all the other elders. And when we come together in that elder meeting, we pray. We pray for you. 
we work our way through the directory every two weeks, every two weeks, every two weeks. And when we get to the end of the directory, we start over again. We just keep doing that. That's our way of being devoted to prayer. Now, the deacons of our church help take care of physical needs and tasks in the church that are necessary for us to live together and do the work of the Lord smoothly, without problems, like they were experiencing here in Acts 6. And in that way, deacons protect elders like me. They protect us from being diverted away from preaching and teaching and prayer. The work of the deacons is like regular acts of personal maintenance that you might do to keep your body healthy, some regular exercise, brushing your teeth daily, a checkup at the doctor's office. I'm so thankful for the deacons in our congregation. I'm thankful for Arun David who oversees our sound team. I praise God for Hannah Donald who leads our children's ministry team. I deeply appreciate Lais Laraya, who heads up our ushering and welcome team that greets you at the back door and helps you find your way in. I'm praying for Josue Romualdo as he leads the music team. Bryce Zerbic serves our church so well by organizing all of our volunteers on all the different teams. Sarah Thomas is a deaconess as well, and she provides helpful leadership in making sure that we pay attention to university students that are in our midst. And though he had to move back to the Philippines, Alan Formoso served us so faithfully by overseeing setup in our church, and he became a deacon right before he had to go back to the Philippines. I'm so thankful for each and every one of those people. And lastly, even though none of the benevolence team is officially holding the office of deacon, Jason Thomas and Edwin Rodriguez and Thelma Isandu are blessing our church, and especially us as elders, by overseeing the distribution of benevolence money. I'm so, so grateful for every single one of them. And just as much as you thank the Lord for the elders and you pray for us, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to do the same for the deacons in our midst. And when you see them, when you have the opportunity, go to them and thank them for their work. Thank their teams for what they're doing. They help maintain the unity in our church, the unity of the Spirit, and they prevent Satan from sowing discord and division in our midst. The whole church was pleased with what the apostles proposed in their solution, and so they picked seven men who met the qualifications. Stephen and Philip are listed first in this list, perhaps because they're both going to feature prominently. They're going to be important figures in the ongoing story of the growth of the church. In fact, Stephen features in the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Philip is the one who leads the Ethiopian to Christ there on the road. We'll read about that later. But there's another thing to note about these seven. They all have Greek names, Hellenistic names. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of them were Hellenistic Jews, but it makes it very, very likely that most of them, if not all of them, were Hellenistic Jews put in place 
to take care of the distribution. There's wisdom in choosing leaders who represent the diversity of a congregation if God grants the spiritual qualifications. There's wisdom in that. And at the least, we as elders want to be the most understanding of the issues and the needs of the congregation, especially those of you who are members who are different than us. Women, those who are, in my case, younger than me, or maybe from a different country, a different ethnicity than me. We want to lead the congregation well in loving one another. Did you notice that the whole congregation was involved in making the decision about who would oversee the daily distribution? The full number of disciples, it said back in verse 2. And the whole gathering, it says in verse 5. One of our convictions as a church is that the final authority in who will be the leaders of the church rests with the whole church, the membership. That kind of church government is called congregationalism. Now, congregationalism doesn't mean that the elders don't lead. It also doesn't mean that the congregation helps make every single decision. Like, we don't want you helping to make the decision about when to buy more copy paper. That would be a waste of your time. It's clear here that the apostles are leading, though. They're proposing the solution. They're laying out the qualifications. And so, when we bring in new elders or new deacons, the whole church membership has a say. And that's what happens both when you come to us before a leadership vote and you make a comment to us about someone who's been nominated to be an elder or a deacon. Either you raise a concern or you commend that person to us. And also when you come to those members meetings, the five that we have a year, and you affirm or perhaps deny why someone should be a leader amongst us. Your vote is your participation in that decision. That's how our congregationalism works. The apostles finally, in our passage, receive the seven men that the congregation put forward to them, and they pray, and they commission them for this important task. And the result of all of this is increasing growth increasing growth. We see that in verse 7. He says, the Word of God increased. And he says, the number of disciples multiplied. The unity in the church was preserved as the seven Spirit-filled men ensured that no group was neglected in the daily distribution. Unity in the church is crucial to our witness in the world. Every time we recite our church covenant together, we say that we will work for the bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit. We pledge that to one another. I hope you take that seriously. Not just when we recite it out loud to one another, but in your relationships with one another day in and day out. Jesus prayed for the church to be unified in John 17. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Not only was deepening division and disunity avoided in this passage, but the preaching of the Word and the work of the apostles was protected. These wise decisions on the part of the church paved the way for the gospel to grow. For numerical growth, God was adding numbers to their body, but also for growth in godly maturity. And that might be the only growth that God gives us if we guard our unity and the preaching of the Word as well. And we'll praise God for that, even if He doesn't add to our numbers. When Luke speaks about the Word of God increasing, he's saying that the gospel message was leading to more and more people entering the kingdom of heaven. More and more people were trusting in Christ. The Word, if you'd noticed, has been mentioned three times in these short seven verses. The Word must be central in importance to every gospel-preaching church and to our church as well. The reason is that Jesus is our King. He is our ruler. He is our Lord. And if He's to lead our church, we must constantly be listening to His Word. This is how He speaks to us. Animated by the Spirit, reading His Scriptures, both individually and corporately when we come together weekly. We're listening for His Word to convict us of sin and to assure us of forgiveness that we can have from Him. We're listening to it to know what should be our priorities day in and day out, how we should treat one another inside the church and those outside the church as well. We're listening for His warnings to us of the ways that Satan would seek to do us harm. And we're listening to it so that we'll be increasingly filled with hope, enabling us to persevere until Christ returns or He calls us home. At the heart of Scripture is the simple gospel message that the apostles preached. In the temple and from house to house they were preaching it, they reminded people that there was one God who was the creator and judge of everything and everyone that we were created to worship Him and find our deepest fulfillment and contentment in Him, but that we have all rebelled against Him. We've turned our backs on Him, and we've fallen short of what He intended for us. Perfect holiness, perfect love, perfect obedience. That rebellion that we carry around then in our hearts guarantees our condemnation before God. No one no one will escape God's just wrath and punishment for sin. But God, in His lavish mercy and grace, has done what we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent a Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus saves us from the just wrath of God. He stood in our place and took the wrath of God when He was nailed to the cross. He did that for anyone who repents and trusts in Him. That person who puts their faith in Jesus is born again. They receive the Spirit of God who adds the righteousness of Christ to our account before God. This simple but profound message was what was increasing in and through the church. Every person who trusts in Christ becomes a disciple of Christ. 
these verses are the first time in Luke's account that he uses this word disciple. A disciple is someone who's learning a way of life. They're an apprentice. They're a learner. Every true Christian is a disciple of Jesus. The way that you become a disciple is by believing the gospel. This message that I just summarized for you, by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. When you do that, you begin a life of learning from Him. Are you a disciple of Jesus? What are you learning from Him? You know, Joanne and I, on our drive here to the church building this evening, we gave a ride to Darmesh. He told me what he was reading in Scripture. He's been reading Hebrews chapter 9, by the way. You can ask him about it. And then he turned to me and he said, Brian, what have you been learning from Jesus lately? What a great question. I love that Darmesh, who's probably about two years old in the Lord, asked me what I'm learning from Jesus. What a blessing. Everyone who's a disciple is learning from Jesus. How are you patterning your life after Him, after Jesus' priorities, after Jesus' purposes, after Jesus' goals? Are they yours? If you're not a disciple, you can become one. Anyone can. Anyone. Trust in Christ. Set out to live for Him. Believe in what He did on the cross to wash away your sin. Receiving the forgiveness for your sins is what will happen. He will walk with you. He will teach you. Turn to Jesus. Dealing with legitimate complaints in a wise way here in our passage led to the growth of the church, and it will be the same way for us as well, brothers and sisters. Covenant Hope Church, oh, work for the unity of the Spirit, and God will bless us. Pray for God to raise up gospel teachers who will be set apart as elders, and God will bless us with gospel growth. Pray for spirit-filled and wise servants who will become deacons in our church, and God will bless us with an increase in the Word amongst us. We can experience the same protection and increase of God's favor among us if we follow the leading of the Spirit as they did. We can because Jesus is alive and He is Lord of the church, even our church. Let's pray to Him. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that You sent Christ into the world to die for sinners like us. We praise You that anyone can turn to You and receive the new life that You offer. Oh Lord, we pray for our church that we would indeed maintain a bond of peace through the unity of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would continue to be faithful in implementing and filling the roles of elders and deacons in our midst. Lord, we pray that You would bless us for Your namesake and for Your glory. Amen.